Ladies and gentlemen, our esteemed audiences, our guests and friends, welcome to our uh, event. Uh, we are the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, and today we have a book launch for you. And first of all, please let us invite the director of the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, professor and editor of our volume, Hybrid Threats um, in, in, in Baltics and Taiwan, uh, Professor Andris Sprots. Welcome, Professor. Una, good morning and thank you so much for introduction. Ladies and gentlemen and friends, colleagues, good morning today. And of course, uh, I am pleased to welcome everyone also in this virtual format to the book presentation. The book presentation this time on commonalities, risks and lessons for small democracies on hybrid threats in Baltics and Taiwan. Uh, the book presentation and conversation is always a pleasant event as it is the result of creative cooperative endeavor ready for a longer period. Uh, certainly societies are being recently tested by a variety of stress tests, if not storms. Uh, a COVID pandemic has brought societies to lockdowns and of course international cooperation also has been somewhat tested by an even distribution of vaccines and also vaccine diplomacy. Uh, we are developed uh, and being interconnected very much in technological domain. But of course also that creates a lot of vulnerabilities and challenges. So on the one hand development and modern societies, at the same time, we face some uh, challenges also in this regard. And of course, uh, if we watch the news recently, we see the geopolitics of resentment have increased risks of global and regional conflicts. And of course, it's not just for recent developments in recent times, we've seen perhaps it for the last decades. This shows uh, how much uh, the, the world is interconnected. Uh, of course, societies interact in, in many ways in global village. And it also underlines an important understanding that internal strengths of societies in, is very much indispensable in these uh, stormy times to withstand those challenges. And uh, already coming closer to the book, of course, small democracies in the Baltics and Taiwan are not exceptions facing those challenges of variety of hybrid threats and also realizing importance of increasing societal resilience. So in this regard, in this context, cooperation, comparison, exchange of best practices is always important. And of course, this has been the, the main goal of this publication and certainly of the forthcoming conversation. So we thank Taipei Mission and Latvia for cooperation and support. We are also very happy to have a distinguished group of authors to contribute and of course an excellent panel of speakers today to discuss those issues which are very much important and relevant for our society. So I think this is a very timely book presentation and very timely conversation. So I am wishing a successful debate today and transferring back responsibilities of moderation to Dr. Una Alexandra Berzni-Cherenkova, who of course is a uh, the faculty member at Riga Stradinch University and also the head of the Asia program at Latvian Institute of International Affairs. Una, the floor is back yours. 
Excellent. Thank you, Professor. And now it's my turn to say a few words about the volume itself. Now, I want to point out that it is available for download at the uh, LIIA website and the full name, Hybrid Threats in Baltics and Taiwan, Commonalities, Risks and Lessons for Small Democracies. Uh, what does this volume contain then? In fact, uh, it is uh, the chapters. There are eight chapters in total, and three of the authors are with us here today, and will have a discussion with us. And the uh, the chapters are divided into several sections, including societal resilience and political legitimacy, energy and critical infrastructure security, cybersecurity, of course. We cannot talk about hybrid threats without cybersecurity. And of course, cybersecurity feeds also into the other chapters. And finally, strategic communication. Uh, so you're welcome to um, um, give that a read. And now for our discussion, let me introduce the excellent panel that Professor already referred to in his address. First of all, we have uh, J. Michael Cole. J. Michael Cole is a Taipei-based senior fellow with the Global Taiwan Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, the McDonnell Laurier Institute in Ottawa, Canada, and the Taiwan St uh, Studies Program at the University of Nottingham, U.K. Um, J. Michael Cole holds a master's degree in war studies from the Royal Military College in Canada, and he is also uh, a practitioner. He has that experience um, uh, as he is a former, um, uh, a former intelligence officer with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Um, I want to point out that J. Michael Cole is a published and esteemed author, and his latest book just came out in 2020. Um, sorry, that's me still living in 2021. So his latest book came out two years ago in 2020, but still pretty recent. Uh, welcome, Michael. Um, looking forward to, your, uh, to talking to you today. We also have with us Vida um, Machikenaite, who is uh, an assistant professor at the University, International University of Japan. So quite a geography here today. Vida. Uh, holds graduate degrees from Keio University in Japan and Fudan University in China. Her major field of research is Chinese domestic and foreign policies, but she's also interested in authoritarian regimes and state capacity in comparative perspective. I want to add that Vida uh, has been a very sought-after expert in, in, in the recent year due to uh, the Lithuanian developments, and she's definitely one of the top experts to speak on that. So welcome, Vida. And um, we also have um, our uh, good friend and, and an old colleague, um, uh, Ivo Jurve, who is the Head of Security and Resilience Program and Research Fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security, ICDS, coming, from us, uh, coming to us from Tallinn, I believe. Um, uh, Ivo uh, is a has been a practitioner uh, in the field of security for over 13 years. Uh, he has advised the National Security and Defense Coordination Unit of the Estonian Government Office. Um, and he, and also the head of the International Security Institute of the Estonian Academy of Social uh, uh, Security Sciences. Pardon me. Now, Ivo holds a PhD from the University of Tartu, and he has also taught there at his alma mater. And he also has taught at the Estonian Military Academy, Estonian School of Diplomacy, um, uh, NATO School, and Frontex Masters Program. Now, Ivo writes uh, and lectures on. Uh, information warfare, intelligence services, and other forms of hybrid conflict. So Ivo is right at home in this discussion. Um, he has also worked as an honorary research fellow at University College London. Um, he has spoken at Stanford and Georgetown. 
and Ivo is also the author of several books and numerous articles. So an excellent panel. So. Um, also, for the, for our audience, I just want to quickly um, um, give a, give uh, give some some information regarding how you can contribute to today's conversation. We welcome questions. Um, please scan the QR code uh, in the left corner of your screen, or alternatively, you can just log into slide uh, sorry SLI so Sly do Slido and uh, with the ha and post with the hashtag LIIA. Um, January um, 20. But I think the QR option is is better. So please um, uh, let us let us jump right to it. Vida, uh, if, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, we are used to conduct comparisons among similar objects, right? We normally compare things that are close, such as we're so used to compare Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, what are the similarities here when we're talking about the Baltics and Taiwan? Thank you, Una. Yes, indeed, as, as you noted, that at the first glance, this comparison between the Baltics and Taiwan might be, well, surprising, to say the least, right? But then as you look closer, you probably will you, you uh, start seeing some kind of a pattern when, when we are talking about the hybrid threats that these, uh, well, that the Baltic states and Taiwan faces, you can see a pattern, well, kind of the, the framework, which which is suitable for comparison. And, and it does indeed offer these, these cases, the Baltic states and Taiwan offer, a, I would say, a rather uh, good, um, good, good two cases to compare, and just well, there are several elements that I would like to highlight uh, that make these cases comparable, and well, that, like I said, offer a good fr framework for that. So the first one is when we are talking about the hostile actors in both the hybrid hybrid warfare that those that the Baltic states and Taiwan faces. So the actors share the hostile actors of the of the two two cases do share some well, similarities, right? These would be the major source of activities is said to come from, well, for the Baltic states from Russia and the, the security services have long emphasized, like for years have been pointing out that Russia has been and it still remains to be the major source of hostile activities against the Baltic states. While at the same time for Taiwan, well, my colleagues in the volume also point out that uh, that a large, uh, well, a large number of cases of hybrid warfare used against Taiwan also originates from China. Would it be cyber activity, uh, cyber security? Would it be uh, uh, misinformation? Well, the uh, military activities around Taiwan, or well, that's that's still like the the actor next to well, next door. Let's put it this way: a major actor, a large country with with a very different with a very different regime, right? We are talking about small democracies that we are comparing, and then we have the the um, hostile actors next to them with very different regime types. Uh, and that's that's what I would say the, the the first element probably that that brings those two cases on the same uh, on the same uh, uh, line if we want to compare that. And then the next one, uh, well, would be the goals of those hostile actors. If you look at the Baltic region, at the Baltic states, and at Taiwan, you we can also see well, similarities in terms of the goals of those those hostile actors pursue, and that's very often well. I, I put it very like generally and 
and uh, that's it's not that I, I can mention all of the like all of the goals but generally this has been the the aim of those actors like China and Russia has been to undermine the the very social fabric of the target countries so in, in the Baltics or in Taiwan and uh, that could be well trying to to shape public opinion to to undermine public support for democracy like democratic institutions for state institutions um, in the case of the Baltics, also there there has been a, well an issue that uh, information campaigns uh, would target NATO, like uh, Western partners, right? Like NATO NATO alliance, um, NATO partners, uh, membership in the in the EU sometimes. And in the case of of Taiwan, I believe that would also would be this like well basically. Uh, undermine uh, undermining or targeting Taiwan's ability to capacity to to stay uh, well to resist uh, China's uh, China's influence so and also in when we are talking about the goals probably I could ask that also in the case of the Baltics and Taiwan some of the strategies uh, employed hybrid strategies employed by, by those two actors are also similar of course there are differences as well but there are similar similar uh, strategies such as co-optation in the baltics we still have well, we we have uh, we see um, ethnic groups different ethnic groups like in, in lithuania's case that would be polish and russians and in latvia and estonia more of russians and these the, these uh, groups would be targeted by, um, once again, by hostile forces, well, by, by Russia mainly, as indicated, uh, as security services point out, that th this is, uh, well, the uh, Russian authorities would try to co-opt them, try to, to uh, in a way, advocate or promote the agenda favored by by Russia, right? And my colleagues again in the volume write uh, write about similar cooptation attempts in 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 Taiwan. And finally, that would be also the the nature of challenges faced. Once again, the the like there are different challenges that the Baltic region, the Baltic states, and uh, Taiwan faces. But I would see some some. Uh, considerable uh, overlaps, and that would mainly be cybersecurity, like the the concern over cyber attacks, and also the uh, well disinformation or misinformation. Uh, that's that has been for for Baltic states that has been a very significant challenge, and ever since 2007 uh, attack on Estonia, and then well probably even before that, um, there has been. It, it has been obvious that the the information sphere needs some uh, well needs to be protected in a way, or the society needs to be educated how to uh, how to handle that. And also, uh, when it comes to Taiwan, uh, there have been uh, there are some there's some data that uh, well cyber attacks from the from China from the mainland there are like continuous constant. Uh, uh, attacks uh, in cyberspace and then when it comes to misinformation or disinformation also there has it ha there has been a report that uh, one fourth uh, a quarter of um, misinformation related to pandemics in Taiwan came from uh, from China and that's just one of the cases that, that that I mentioned but basically these are the major challenges that those countries face so when we think when we think about the Baltic states and uh, Taiwan in terms of 
well, when we talk about hybrid uh, hybrid threats and we think about them in terms of the hostile actors they, they face or they need to resist, in terms of the goals that those actors pursue and also the challenges that Baltic states, the Baltic states and Taiwan faces, I would say this, we have a very good framework for comparison, for comparing these two, these two cases, the Baltic states and Taiwan. And then why it's so important. It, definitely can offer some lessons. While these these two places are very far uh, far apart, we can look at one and another and see how how similar similar challenges or how well kind of uh, hostile actors of similar nature can be well how those countries can uh, and regions can respond to. So that's that's probably the the most important thing that the, that there are lessons definitely that can be learned uh, from each other. Yes, perfect. That's that's completely convincing. And uh, just to uh, pick up on some of the things that Vida just said, Michael, I turn to you now. Um, uh, in in the contribution in in the book, Vida, as well as our Taiwanese colleagues, uh, they talk about the in increasing the resilience of the population uh, uh, to counter fake news. And Vida just uh, spoke about outside actors trying to exploit the ethnic and historical divisions in the Baltic societies. Now, Michael, in your article, you touch upon a similar subject. You mentioned polarization of the Taiwanese society. Now, if you had to comment on the similarities, we're still on that, right? The similarities part. Um, do we also see specific groups in Taiwan that they're be more susceptible to fake news as we do in the Baltics? And what are these groups and what can be done? Right. Well, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to take part today. Um, it's, uh, it's truly an honor to be part of that uh, book project and to be allowed to speak today and share my views. Uh, first off, I would I would like to perhaps point out the fact that uh, you know, small democracies might actually be a bit of a misnomer when it comes to Taiwan, uh, given both the size of its of its economy and of its population as well, with 23.5 million people, uh, somewhat equivalent to the uh, population of Australia, for example. Uh, but of course, if you place that that small that democracy next to a giant uh, authoritarian regime like like in China, of course, Taiwan does does seem to be small. I think it it might be splitting hairs. But it also does have an impact on self-perception and perhaps people's willingness to resist uh, outside aggression as well. So I think it's important to, to point that out to begin with. Now, to your to your question, uh, again, I think I would like to split that question into two. First of all, it's important to uh, to take a very quick look at the sources of disinformation and misinformation targeting Taiwan. Uh, so from the outside, uh, certainly China is the primary source of that type of information. Uh, so within the PRC, we have the United Front Work Department and allied uh, units that do generate and spread disinformation. Uh, units like Taiwan Affairs Office under the State Council. Uh, the PLA uh, is a contributor to this as well. Uh, you have the uh, so-called 50 centers uh, that also act upon direction by uh, the Chinese regime to spread disinformation aimed at Taiwan. And you also have the, uh, the patriots in China who are acting independently, uh, but also are fueling that, uh, that barrage of disinformation aimed uh, at Taiwan and the international community. Uh, we also see uh, among ethnic uh, Chinese communities outside China, in places like Malaysia, for example, 
that also have played an active role in spreading disinformation against Taiwan, oftentimes uh, using families uh, who have uh, substantive uh, business links uh, with China. So there's a bit of a quid pro quo, if you will, that in return for playing a role in disinformation campaign against Taiwan, uh, they see an increased ability uh, to make uh, fortunes back in, in China. Now, there's also elements within Taiwan that are contributing to disinformation, generating and spreading. Uh, so you do have pro-CCP, pro-unification groups uh, within Taiwan. Uh, you have so-called red media in Taiwan, uh, official, uh, traditional and non-traditional. Uh, you have political parties, you have civil society, sub-state actors. You have influencers on, on platforms like YouTube, for example. Uh, you have artists who are making a living in, in the PRC. Uh, so you have content farms that are launched by business people who are making uh, doing business in China. Uh, you have the so-called Taishan, so business people who are Taiwanese, uh, but who are located in China. There's approximately 1 million uh, or 1 23rd of Taiwan's overall population who are based in China. Some of those elements might be uh, willing contributors to disinformation, psychological warfare and whatnot against, uh, against uh, Taiwan. Uh, now, to your question on, on ethnicity, uh, given Taiwan's history, as we know, uh, you know, a lot of Taiwanese, most of them, their ancestors were, you know, came from China, uh, certainly following World War II as well, and the KMT's defeat in the Chinese Civil War, uh, you had a few million Chinese fleeing to Taiwan, and then, you know, over decades, they had their, their families and all that, they grew their roots in Taiwan, uh, but they still have that affinity and, you know, ancestral roots uh, back in China. So within that particular ethnic group, uh, you would likely find people who are a bit more amenable to receiving, uh, internalizing disinformation from China and perhaps even spreading it for political goals. Now, as to the targets, uh, as I said, the people in Taiwan who are pro-unification, uh, which is now in the low single digits in Taiwan, uh, are certainly more receptive to that material, that information, and also willing to, to spread it. Uh, and by doing so, they are reinforcing uh, the polarization, political polarization that exists in Taiwan, perhaps also trying to win hearts and minds or to convince Taiwanese that their future lies with China. Uh, although given the current context and certainly situation in China, uh, that particular aspect of this information is not uh, yielding the dividends that Beijing is looking for. Uh, then uh, also within Taiwan, you have groups, people who are not necessarily pro-unification, uh, but they're nevertheless opposed to either the ruling Democratic Progressive Party uh, or to President Tsai Ing-wen herself or, or to Taiwanese independence, the Euro independence. Uh, now, by receiving and disseminating disinformation that is either generated in China or within Taiwan, uh, they may become inadvertent uh, or unconscious disseminators of this information that actually originated in uh, China. Uh, that also includes supporters of the opposition Guomindang, uh, particularly those who you know, nowadays seem to regard the DPP uh, as the greatest enemy as opposed to, it, to the external threat uh, that is posed by, by China. So all this as well exacerbates polarization uh, within Taiwan, both ethnic uh, but certainly political as well. And that's something that China certainly benefits because it prevents the emergence of a, you know, a kind of united front within Taiwan uh, that tries to push back against, uh, against China.
Then you also have uh, certain uh, issue-based groups within Taiwan. Uh, for example, those that oppose same-sex marriage legalization a few years ago, uh, those that oppose pension reform by the Tsai administration, uh, who also are willing to replicate disinformation that comes from China uh, only to score points against, uh, against the government. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they believe the content of that disinformation or they even agree with the Chinese regime, but that gives them ammunition to try to uh, generate further pressure against uh, the government and to discredit it. Uh, now, again, all these issues, uh, the key aim is to reinforce opposition uh, to the ruling uh, DPP and President Tsai uh, in Taiwan, uh, also to erode uh, belief and support for democratic institutions within Taiwan, uh, to generate confusion uh, within the public, certainly over, over COVID and vaccines. Uh, we've seen that in the past couple of years as well. Loads of disinformation coming from China to discredit the domestic vaccine uh, in Taiwan, the government's response to COVID-19. Um, now, one of the key groups that tends to spread disinformation is our, our elderly, uh, who oftentimes uncritically will receive information by friends and simply post that on their line group. That's one of the apps that's very popular in Taiwan. Uh, and without really giving, giving any thought as to whether this is based on facts or might even be harmful uh, to the country. And then there's a last uh, segment as well within Taiwan, within what we call the green camp, so the pro-independence, pro-DPP camp, uh, but individuals and groups that nevertheless are, uh, are not supporters of Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, so you have uh, elements within those groups that have been spreading for the past two or three years, disinformation basically putting into question the fact that President Tsai has a PhD from, the, uh, from LSE uh, in the UK. Uh, and also spreading other disinformation. Again, not because they're supporters of the CCP or support uh, unification with China, uh, but simply because their resentment for President Tsai and what she stands for uh, is greater than their fears of Chinese uh, taking over, over Taiwan. So this has also been a non-traditional element, if you will, in the spreading of, of disinformation within, uh, within Taiwan. Uh, what 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 do you think can be done to curb these this the spread of disinformation? Right. Well, that's the other part of the equation. Uh, certainly, uh, efforts that have been ongoing uh, must continue to identify and to track sources of disinformation. Again, uh, both coming from China, from outside China, and here within uh, within Taiwan, uh, there needs to be continued efforts to develop applications. Uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on cell phones uh, that can flag and that, that can counter uh, disinformation. Uh, we need certainly continued collaboration between the government and the private sector, uh, for example, Facebook, uh, to prevent the spread of disinformation. And we saw an example of this in the lead up uh, to the presidential elections here in 2020, uh, whereby a number of content farms that were known to be generating and spreading disinformation uh, were flagged by, by Facebook, uh, and basically what Facebook did, is they made it impossible uh, for people to share on the Facebook platform uh, any pages that came from those particular content farms, which eventually were, were shut down as well. Great majority of which, by the way, were run by Taiwanese uh, business people who had uh, business connections back in, uh, back in China. Uh, where necessary, we need legal instruments to punish repeat offenders. Uh, that includes, in the extreme, shutting down their operations or removing 
uh, their broadcast or cable license. And we saw that with one particular uh, TV station in Taiwan that was a repeat offender. Uh, and that is run by an individual who is making millions and millions of dollars back in China and has been actively involved in other means to promote unification and uh, so confusion here in, uh, in Taiwan. Um, on a more strategic level, uh, we need greater surveillance, and this is the whole of society effort, but greater surveillance of disinformation trends uh, so that the government can preempt disinformation rather than simply react uh, to disinformation uh, by presenting the facts before a dis disinformation campaign or operation can be initiated. Uh, the, chat, the title of my chapter uh, touches upon strategic communication. I think this is also very important, uh, both at domestic and international level, uh, so that Taiwan can close off some areas that can be exploited uh, by purveyors of disinformation, hostile states, uh, CCP and all that. Uh, and finally, one last point, and again, this is ongoing, uh, sustained media literacy campaigns uh, within the school system in Taiwan, uh, as, as well as among vulnerable groups within Taiwan. Uh, we need to see deepened coordination between government and civil society uh, and much uh, better efforts should be made as well to make sure that NGOs in Taiwan that have been developing applications, that have been tracking uh, means of disinformation and impact of disinformation are, are properly funded. And this has been a bit of a, of a blind spot for Taiwan. Uh, these organizations, NGOs oftentimes are one generation ahead of government when it comes to technology and these things. Uh, but oftentimes they have uh, been underfunded and that can only derail or at least undermine the efforts to, to make the contributions that are needed for uh, so that Taiwanese society can counter uh, Chinese disinformation. Apologies on my side from pushing you towards the cybersecurity domain, even though your uh, your uh, article was indeed on strategic communication. But as we already established, those are not siloed domains. So thank you so much for uh, um, uh, you know playing ball with me here. And I just want to point out that indeed, what also according to what you said, you know, there's good news because apparently big tech can be pushed to deliver uh, when it comes to curbing of disinformation. Of course, they're reluctant to do so, but uh, it's good news that there are still methods to push them towards that. Now, Vida, in terms of recommendations um, uh, from this side, uh, of, 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 of from the Baltic side, is there anything you could add? Vida, we don't hear you. Apologies. Yes, so sorry, my mistake. No I'm worries. sorry. Yes. It's good now. Uh, Thank you. Yes, I would agree that well, most of what Michael has said probably applies to the to the Baltic states as well. Like, well, uh, private-public partnership, and we have seen those uh, those attempts already in the Baltic states as well. When private media outlets would would try to would launch a, uh, an initiative where just verifying the news, right? Like, well, explaining to the to the society that well, this is the this is what was announced. This is the information that we have received that has been made public. Is it true or not? So uh, initiatives like this, and they have been successful indeed. They 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 deliver the message very very clearly of what is right and what is wrong, what is accurate and what is not accurate. So uh, well, partnerships like this or projects like this, and of course, well, funding sometimes for them is uh, is uh, very important. And well, many other uh, policies have been implemented as well. But I always well I. I'm an advocate of the position that hybrid threats continue and hybrid warfare tools keep evolving and changing. And it's very difficult to well to preemptively take measures. So the, the key here is uh, 
is um, cult well, cultivating or educating the society, cultivating the, the society's uh, awareness, probably I should put it this way, uh, and understanding of what, what the threats are and how the, how the information should be uh, perceived. And here, of course, the, the crucial point is media literacy. Um, as Michael has already mentioned, but in the case of the Baltics, I would see that there's another crucial point when it comes to the um, ethnic group policies, right? When, well, we have, uh, we have um, different ethnic groups and research shows what, what we see in the data that they are more susceptible to, to well, different misinformation campaigns, also because their source uh, of information is very well is often different from from the rest of the population and they they indeed they, they are more receptive to that information coming uh coming from hostile uh, uh actors and uh, not alienating those ethnic groups from the from the rest of the society or within the country not alienating them this is also a, a very important thing to consider so like this Cohesion of the society is also a very important element here when we talk about the country's resilience to hybrid threats. So probably that would be my main point that I would add. Thank you. Thank you. And now we have, in fact, some questions from the audience. And uh, I think Evo is very well set to answer that. Uh, and the question, in fact, is what are hybrid threats and is it a new phenomenon? Evo, I'm sure you hear this question a lot. What is the response here? Uh, thank you. Uh, well, yes, I do. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think that there is very, very clear answer. Well, uh, hybrid, uh, as we mostly know, probably comes from Greek and then means uh, mixture. So uh, hybrid threats, it should be a mixture of, of different threats. Uh, what we can add to the mixture, it uh, depends probably the, the recipe in, in, uh, on the on the scholar who is talking about it, or, or on the on the state who is um, uh, practicing it. So uh, most probably there should be economy there, information, also diplomacy, and uh, last not least, uh, military, uh, and of course uh, sub uh, subversions of them, uh, subdivisions of, of these things like uh, cyber threats as well. Uh, but. Uh, and then sometimes in the academic community there is a um, uh, discussion that should uh, uh, should the military threats uh, be included or uh, not and, and uh, there is no uh, joint answer to that yet but uh, I assume that probably they should because uh, these things are very closely connected. If you ask that uh, how uh, new thing it is then definitely not new. The, um, the earliest military theoretician whose works we still have is uh, Sun Tzu <laughs> from, uh, from China and uh, two and a half thousand years ago and uh, his ideas are, are very very similar to what is described in the security uh, strategies uh, currently. So uh, it's not something very Russian or, or not something uh, very uh, very new. Excellent. And while I have your attention, thank you for clearing that name and thank you for explaining this. We probably should have started with this and that's on me. But um, I just want to, you know, kind of pull on, on the thread of, of the goals of how do we strengthen? So what can be done in terms of resilience against hybrid threats, right? So in your chapter, you speak of two goals for the next decade to strengthen the Baltics against hybrid threats. And actually both have one thing in common. Uh, they both speak of linking with continental Europe, with 
Western Europe to increase our resilience. So one thing you're talking about is that we need to plug into the European power grid rather than the current Brel uh, one. Um, so if you could also explain that. And mm -hmm. the other one is about building the European gauge rail connection, Rail Baltica. We have it right here a few blocks away from, from our venue. So how optimistic are you regarding both of these of these goals? And has Russia tried to hamper this in any way mm -hmm. so far, given the importance of, of these goals to our resilience? Uh, yeah, thank you. Well, um, uh, first of all, yes, my chapter was about energy and, and infrastructure. So that's why these are the, uh, the two main goals. But uh, even there, we have to uh, keep in mind that um, uh, being secure or uh, building up resilience, it's something like washing teeth. It has to be done on a daily basis. It's not like that, that we will finish these two projects and then we are done and then can live uh, happily, happily ever after. Uh, but yes, yeah, sure, uh, electricity has the importance because, well, uh, we are very dependent in, in everything on that and uh, also transportation. If, if the goods are not moving, then uh, we are in, in uh, deep trouble uh, soon as well. And I assume that in uh, this sense we are a little bit uh, in better position maybe than uh, Taiwan because, uh, well, we have uh, Europe uh, quite close and then there is, uh, yeah, friend are close, friends are close by and then we can integrate uh, there. Uh, on execution of these uh, two projects, uh, I'm uh, rather optimistic. Well, the, um, first of all, the, um, for the first time, the Baltic um, uh, electricity systems were synchronized in uh, 1960s, at the beginning of 1960s, uh, 1962 to be more precise, and that's how it continues. But that, uh, at that time, uh, we were tied to the um, uh, Soviet uh, system. In order to synchronize from uh, that so-called uh, Brel uh, and then to synchronize with um, uh, the Central European uh, power grid, uh, the investments have been made already for uh, quite a long uh, time. There is S-Link 1, S-Link 2, the um, uh, power cables that uh, undersea power cables that are connecting Estonia with Finland and Northern Europe uh, as whole from there, uh, especially the, the, uh, um, uh, the power plants in, in uh, Norway. And uh, also North Balt uh, link between uh, Lithuania and, and Sweden, also undersea uh, link uh, built for the same uh, reason. Uh, the Harmony link and Litpol link between Lithuania and, and Poland are uh, under construction at the moment. So uh, it seems that uh, it's possible uh, to, to uh, succeed um, uh, by 2025. Uh, but the new question that will arise there is that if there is enough uh, electricity supply that, uh, well, uh, we know a lot about, well, we have heard lately a lot about climate change, which uh, probably will, uh, which already now has influenced our climate a little bit, that there are more storms than uh, there used to be earlier, which also means uh, more uh, power cuts. And the European uh, clean, uh, clean, uh, Green Deal also means that many things uh, that we now do with um, uh, basically oil, uh, for example, uh, the cars and, and um, the rail, uh, they are transferred to electricity. So uh, there, there might be uh, some problems. Uh, on uh, Russian influence uh, in this, uh, in, in uh, that business, I uh, haven't heard, at least in, in uh, the public sources, open sources, it's not uh, present. 
Uh, with Realpolitik, um, the things are a little bit different. Uh, of course, yes, already we can see uh, some uh, first um, first installations in the uh, physical uh, background or, or in in um, in the countryside um, uh, in the in the pre um, uh, Baltic states. Uh, but here, um, the environmental lobby against uh, against this um, uh, uh, railway has been uh, much more influential, especially in Estonian, which is uh, quite weird that, well, Estonian, uh, it's especially unpopular in the Estonian second biggest city of uh, Tartu. Uh, well, uh, the people there had an idea that it should go uh, via Tartu, which is, uh, well, not worth doing or, or impossible if you look at the map. And uh, once uh, they understood that uh, it is not going to be there, uh, then uh, they find uh, many mistakes. It's, it's not, it's too expensive, it's too bad for environment and, and so on. So it's not the NIMBY effect that not in my backyard, but vice versa, that if it's not in my backyard, then it's very, very uh, bad thing. And uh, there the Russian in interests, of course, um, using such people are much more obvious as, uh, as well, because uh, um, Russia has been interested in the possibilities, at least, uh, for transit via, um, uh, via the Baltic states. Of course, it's maybe to some extent um, uh, losing uh, importance after they have uh, uh, built a huge port in Ustluga, but, uh, but still, their, uh, uh, their gorge in, uh, gorge in, in uh, Baltic states uh, would be good for them. But I, I assume that actually the solution um, uh, is going to be useful for everybody, that we have north-south um, uh, connection, the rail Baltic um, via, the, via the Baltic states uh, European gauge that uh, links us with, with uh, Central and Western Europe, and we have east-west uh, connections that take from, uh, come from the eastern border and then go to the uh, ports, the Baltic Sea ports. Uh, they are still using the uh, white gauge uh, or, or uh, Soviet-Russian uh, gauge, if you, if you uh, uh, want to name it like that. Uh, yes, this would be, uh, thank you, <laughs> it for me. <laughs> thank you. That. And uh, I, Michael, do you hear, you know, to, to just keep this going, that we check back and we compare, right, to keep that to the spirit of comparison. Do you hear any similarities with Taiwan here? Uh, you know, Ivo spoke of transport, of energy, and we hear this over-dependence coming in, right? But there, Evo is uh, optimistic as to the solutions, but maybe you can share with us your views on on uh, on the risks and also your recommendations from where you stand. Well, certainly on the risks, there are several similarities. Uh, let me start off with, with trade, for example. Um, uh, you know, Taiwan is is highly reliant on on China on the Chinese market for for its economy, particularly in terms of, of exports and, and manufacturing. Uh, in fact, a little bit more than 40% of Taiwanese exports uh, end up in the Chinese market. And that, by the way, has continued to grow even uh, in a period of greater tensions in, in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, so that's a subject that is well worth uh, exploring as well. Uh, there is even a school of thought that says that greater economic interdependence might actually uh, act as a break against uh, more uh, greater hostilities, or at least kinetic hostilities in, in the Taiwan Strait. That remains unproven, but certainly a, a theory that's been out there. Uh, so nonetheless, uh, that uh, over-dependence on the Chinese market exposes Taiwan to blackmail, uh, to bans, 
uh, oftentimes by sector, so that China uses the denial of tourism, for example, or the import of food products, as we saw last year, uh, to try to punish the central government. But oftentimes it's even more uh, precise, and they use these means to punish municipalities uh, that tend to uh, support the, the, the policy of the central government, or conversely to reward uh, municipalities uh, that are governed by politicians who are a bit more amenable uh, to Chinese uh, positions on unification, on one country to a systems, or on the construct uh, known as a 1992 consensus. Uh, so they use those to reward uh, municipalities and then again try to exacerbate divisions uh, between those municipalities uh, and the central government. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's about one million Taiwanese business people uh, who work and live in China, oftentimes as employers. Uh, on several occasions, those individuals and their organizations that represent them in China uh, have been weaponized uh, by China, again, to try to uh, act as a lobby uh, against the, China, the Taiwanese government, uh, or oftentimes to spread disinformation or cause trouble uh, for the central government. Uh, another point, Taiwan being a, a, an export-reliant economy, uh, it is dependent on economic growth. Uh, that economic growth is contingent on its ability uh, to trade abroad, so that is outside, outside China. Um, pressure by the Chinese regime can also undermine uh, the signing of free trade agreements between Taiwan and other economies. We have seen that in the case of Australia, for example. Uh, or even try to block Taiwan's accession to trade blocks like the CPTPP, for example. In terms of energy security, Taiwan here again is usually reliant on imported uh, sources of energy, uh, particularly oil and uh, LNG, uh, which creates a vulner vulnerability that China could uh, exploit, for example, through a naval blockade. Uh, and uh, Taiwan simply does not have the ability to store sufficient strategic resources uh, to, able, to be able to last several months if the Chinese try to block off its energy uh, supply. Uh, Taiwan has been investing heavily in renewable uh, energy in recent years. That, has, that was one of the platforms of the Tsai administration. Uh, but you know, projections into 2025 demonstrate that that would still account uh, for a small fraction of the total energy requirements, especially as the current government also intends to phase out uh, nuclear energy in, in Taiwan over safety concerns. And here, Fukushima certainly uh, focused minds in Taiwan as to the potential hazards of having nuclear energy in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan's power grid itself, uh, the ports, distribution, nuclear power plants, uh, are within range of conventional military strikes by the Chinese, so either ground-launched or air-launched, but also to cyber attacks uh, and possibly physical sabotage by CCP proxies in Taiwan, such as pro-Beijing organized crime, pro-unification uh, political parties, sub-state actors, and whatnot. Uh, the grid is aging. Uh, it lacks redundancy. Uh, as we saw last year uh, during a series of blackouts that were caused by a technical glitch uh, down in southern Taiwan and Kaohsiung, and that affected cities uh, across Taiwan. Uh, energy security uh, is a top concern for multinationals, uh, which means that both coercion by China uh, and policies for sustainable power generation by the Taiwanese government that are not regarded as sufficient 
uh, could also have a negative impact on the willingness of foreign companies uh, to establish themselves in Taiwan, which is crucial for Taiwan because it's not only good for its economy, but also contributes to its deterrent against a Chinese attack. Uh, now, transport is another issue as well. Uh, due to its geographical proximity to China, uh, Taiwan is certainly vulnerable to disruptions in civil and military transportation, uh, both within the Taiwan Strait, but also in the Bashi Channel leading up into the South China Sea, uh, but also into the East China Sea, where in 2013, as I recall, uh, the Chinese unilaterally declared an ADIZ that they could enforce as well uh, to try to disrupt uh, air traffic uh, coming into, into Taiwan. Taiwan, however, has one advantage. It's an island, uh, which means that China's ability to disrupt uh, land transportation is uh, severely limited. Now, uh, I'm going to preempt you and move into recommendations, if I may. Uh, the logical first step for Taiwan, and this is something that they have uh, attempted through their new southbound policy that targets uh, South and Southeast Asia, but now also exploring new uh, commercial uh, avenues with uh, Central Eastern Europe, like Lithuania, for example, uh, is simply to reduce reliance on the Chinese economy uh, through market uh, diversification. This is difficult because China has played a very good game uh, in, in encouraging that dependence, but also building up uh, the infrastructure and capacity uh, that other uh, countries like India, for example, they haven't arrived at that point yet. So that makes it a little bit more difficult for Chinese, uh, Taiwanese companies to decide to uproot their manufacturing in China and then uh, build a similar, similar site in India or Thailand or, or Vietnam, for example. Uh, again, going back to strategic communication, uh, you need a ramping up of those efforts uh, to help the international community understand uh, that the Taiwan dispute is not simply a matter that exists between Taiwan and China or within the Taiwan Strait, uh, but that the repercussions of an embargo, uh, let alone uh, kinetic hostilities in the Taiwan Strait, would be regional and very likely global as well. So the more that Taiwan makes the international community realize that this is a global issue, uh, the more resilience uh, could be brought upon Chinese efforts to discourage the Taiwanese or simply take them, uh, take them over. Uh, Taiwan should deepen investment in renewable energy, uh, certainly, uh, particularly areas like new generation storage, so large, large batteries, uh, dispersal, resilience. Uh, these are all issues that are currently being explored and hopefully uh, will be tackled at, uh, at some point. And finally, militarily, uh, the Taiwanese needs to invest in greater capabilities for counter blockade uh, operations uh, and possibly explore jointness with regional allies. I know this is tricky, but they will have to sit down and talk about these issues at some point. Uh, again, because those economies within the region, South Korea, Japan, Australia, Singapore, Philippines, you name it, uh, their economies would also likely be disrupted uh, in the event of a Chinese blockade against Taiwan. Again, because of Taiwan's geographic location, it's very difficult for China to simply isolate uh, Taiwan and not uh, for, for its operations to not have an impact on regional countries. So again, part of Taiwan's strategic communication uh, is to encourage uh, regional partners to realize that they also have a stake uh, in making sure that China does not move in that uh, in that direction. 
Right, and uh, Michael rightly has noted my inclination towards recommendations today, <laughs> guilty as charged. So I turn to Evo because you have this tremendous experience as a practitioner. And given the, the fact that the volume and the discussion is really geared towards recommendations, how interested the practitioner community in, is in our recommendations, in, in think tank recommendations in the first place, and what can be done to build more efficient exchanges with practitioners, uh, both across the Baltics and in, in Baltic-Taiwan cooperation. Right, I guess the mic is on now. Uh, very good question. I guess that it uh, depends depends very much on the on the practitioner and also on the think tank or the um, researcher we are speaking about. Uh, generally, I guess that we have to keep in mind what uh, Winston Churchill nicely, nicely said, that I'm always ready to learn, although I don't always like uh, being taught. Uh, this definitely applies to the, to the practitioners as well. So uh, being a think tanker and then giving your advice, you um, have to be uh, sensitive uh, with, with that thing. And the other thing, um, uh, well, the, concerning whatever exchanges, is it uh, between academia or, or think tankers and, and practitioners or between different countries, uh, trust, uh, trust is uh, one of the most uh, relevant uh, things. And it's uh, especially important in, in uh, the security sector because uh, in order to give relevant advice, you have to be informed and, and many things in, in uh, these, uh, these uh, fields are uh, classified for, uh, for obvious uh, reasons. Uh, but I would say that uh, I really see that uh, the um, interest for, for the recommendations uh, is there. Although uh, sometimes, of course, um, uh, if there are different recommendations, then of course it's a possibility to, uh, to choose the, um, the, for the practitioners to choose the recommendations that uh, they like, uh, like the most. And uh, how to uh, make it better, I guess Leah is really doing a very good uh, um, job, especially in the Baltic states. I uh, don't even uh, know by heart how many joint, product, uh, joint projects with, with uh, Leah I've uh, had uh, in, in uh, recent years. Uh, but it's it's quite a lot, and uh, this is definitely one of the um, one of the ways to to build uh, trust. And I assume that uh, the same it uh, will apply with uh, Taiwan as well. That we, for example, with Michael, we we see for the first time online uh, here if it happens uh, several times over, over some years, and we we meet uh, we meet uh, some uh, sometimes in person as well. Then I guess there will be more trust. Uh, than maybe there is now. I guess all the trust we have at the moment is that since Una has invited us, then probably we should be more or less uh, decent people. So yeah, uh, trust is the key word, and, and I assume it can be built by between us and, and um, between Baltics and Taiwan. Thank you. Thank you, Ivo. And I'm good that my word carries weight with you, that if the people who are in the room with me are decent people, I completely agree with your analysis here. Mm. Now, uh, we're, as we're approaching our final round of remarks, we actually have a couple of audience questions. Now, if I just may ask you, you know, chairs always do that, to keep it brief yet succinct. And I think it's a very important question that we have here. How to tell between dissidents within the civil society and a disinformation campaign from external sources? Uh, please, anyone who would like to pick this, 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 this question. 
Well, if I may, may jump in and try to be succinct, uh, and thank you for including me as, as one of the uh, decent individuals. Um, I mean, this is, this is a, a very difficult balance that absolutely must be struck in, in democratic societies. Uh, we need to tell between individuals who have different opinions, uh, opinions that might go clearly get completely against the wishes and policies of the ruling government, but that nevertheless within a democratic society should be should be countenanced. And that is why, for example, in Taiwan, you still have individuals who can gather outside uh, public venues, uh, uh, very popular tourist areas, and wave the People's Republic of China flag because those individuals support unification. That has sparked a debate within Taiwanese society. Some elements are saying we should ban those. Uh, but this is an expression of people's political preferences. If, on the other hand, individuals are known to be receiving money from an authoritarian regime uh, and willingly distributing information that would be harmful uh, to national security or to individuals, and again, uh, COVID provides a clear example of, of, of the risks, uh, then uh, we cross a certain line, as we see in other democracies, uh, like Canada or the UK, for example, that have very strict rules on hate speech or, or comments, writing uh, or speeches that incite violence against certain minorities, ethnic group, religious groups. Uh, these are lines that simply should not be crossed. But we need, uh, for, for that to, to work, you need a, an agreement between the government and the governed uh, and also a society that believes that the government will act, will act responsibly uh, when it does decide to take action, whether it's legal, legal means, or shutting down organizations and whatnot. Uh, so again, this is, this, is, this, is, this is not an easy issue. It's very easy. It's a slippery slope. It's easy to exploit, to abuse uh, the, the powers that are given to a state when it comes to these issues. Uh, but that all, it, it, it really depends, is contingent on a bond of trust that exists between, between the public uh, and the government. No easy answer, I'm sorry. However, trust seems to be like the word of the day today. Thank you, Michael. It was a good answer, even though it wasn't easy. Um, and Vida, do you have anything to add from the Baltic shores on this? How do we tell from the, you know, the, the, the just, just a dissident who, who has his right not to agree? and a, a campaign. Yeah, that's, I, I think much, much has been said by Michael, right? That it's, it's a very difficult, difficult balance to, to strike. And maybe, maybe it should be done, well, it should be, uh, well, the, the interests of the, of the state probably should be concerned. And what's the vulnerabilities? It's very easy to exploit those, well, those rights to speak and rights to, to express. And that's, well, unfortunately, sometimes, well, the, the state would, would uh, take measures that would not be, uh, that would not secure the right of everyone to, to speak, I guess. That's, but yeah, Michael has said, said that already. So that, I, I don't have much to add. Thank you. So more commonalities, I believe, right? That's another commonality that we share. Uh, so uh, we have a question precisely regarding Taiwan. So Michael, if just in a few words you could answer, I think you answered already, but just how do populists and fake news activists affect domestic politics in Taiwan? How huge is their impact? 
Uh, that's another tough question. I mean, quantifying the impact of disinformation is a challenge, not only for Taiwan, but for countries worldwide. Uh, I would say that if the aim of disinformation was to convince the public, uh, for example, that Taiwan's future lies uh, in the embrace of the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping, uh, I would say that that campaign has failed miserably and very likely even has has, uh, has backfired. Uh, that being said, if the aim uh, is to uh, exacerbate polarization within Taiwan's body politics, uh, I would say, especially in election time, in the lead up to referendums uh, or even in the lead up to local elections, uh, that spread of disinformation, again, uh, coming both from across the Taiwan Strait, but also from within Taiwan, sometimes for different but perhaps overlapping reasons, uh, has certainly uh, consolidated the existence of two camps uh, that simply seem unable to sit down together uh, and resolve issues as one, particularly facing off against the external threat that uh, China poses to Taiwanese society. Uh, in those areas, I think uh, disinformation and other means uh, has been harmful to Taiwan's democracy, to its society. Uh, and we're simply seeing, and we're seeing an example in the United States right now with uh, the split between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and what I'm seeing is that it encourages extreme views uh, and also succeeds in silencing people who stand in the middle uh, who perhaps would be more amenable to cooperation between the two sides, uh, but now simply being reasonable oftentimes results in you and your family members being threatened, uh, then they, these people have gone silent. So you're seeing polarization and move towards the extremes on, on both sides. Uh, and that is definitely an area where I think disinformation has succeeded uh, in, its, in its aims, if indeed that was the initial aim. Thank you. And now for the final round of remarks, uh looking forward to this 2022 that apparently has already started who knew i want you to give me the most pressing threat evil please sorry no sound i did it again well, uh, unfortunately, I guess it's uh, military at the moment. Well, uh, other, um, I guess, uh, many, many other uh, components of the hybrid we can already see. Definitely, there is the diplomatic pressure that has been in the air already for some time. Uh, there is a force buildup. Uh, there are already cyber attacks, not against the Baltic states yet, but um, uh, against Ukraine and then some other targets. Um, uh, targets. Um, so uh, there are sanction system is in place. So the economic um, struggle is, is very much in uh, in uh, in the mix. Uh, so unfortunately for uh, for 2022, uh, many other cyber hyper threats already have uh, have materialized and uh, the, the most tragic or or uh, I'd say, well, yeah, you probably understand. Uh, unfortunately, it's military threat. Thank you. Thank you, Ivo. Vida, to you. Yes, thank you. 
well, I'm afraid I have to present two of them, not one, at least when it comes to Lithuania, because one that, that Ivo already mentioned definitely is this in the context of, of geopolitical situation, and the situation has, was, has very much complicated recently, right? And I would say that this would be, this will be, well, NATO's, uh, NATO's relations with Russia probably will very, very significantly it will change, affect uh, the, the, the situation in the Baltics as well, because definitely there will be, well, we should expect much uh, even more interference or even more attempts to influence the countries in the region. And then at the same time, I cannot uh, I cannot not mention well the, the particular case of Lithuania. It probably doesn't apply to Latvia or Estonia, but I would say that in in the case of Lithuania, 2022 in terms of hybrid threats will probably be a, a very different year. We don't know yet how how the relations with uh, with China in the the diplomatic role will unfold, but I think that in the in the in this coming year we will see a lot of new developments that probably we have not we have not been familiar yet uh, until now. So that these would be the two. Sorry, not not one, but two very different uh, threats that probably brings us closer to Taiwan, even more close, even closer than 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 what I said before. Thank, Thank you, Vida. And Michael, to you. Thank you. Well, I also have two, if I may. Uh, I think the, the most serious threat from a Taiwanese perspective, ironically, lies in Europe. And this is what's going on over Ukraine right now. Uh, we do suspect that Beijing is paying very, very close attention, not only to what uh, Vladimir Putin is doing along the border with Ukraine, uh, but even more so uh, how NATO and the European Union and United States uh, would react in case of an attempted invasion of, of Ukraine or even uh, limited incursions into Ukraine. Uh, Beijing is taking notes. It could either, if there is major hostilities over Ukraine involving United States, uh, this could provide a, uh, an opportunity for China while United States are distracted uh, to try to make a move against uh, against Taiwan. So this is certainly something that worries uh, the people here. But also, uh, you know, the, the type of reaction uh, that we see from NATO United States, if Russia gets away with incursions into Ukraine without major consequences, uh, the Chinese could learn also a very dangerous, le dangerous lesson and conclude that they also uh, could make a move against Taiwan and would not suffer uh, undue consequences as a result of their actions. The second one, and this is a very difficult one to predict because China is not exactly transparent, uh, it would be a major econ economic slowdown in China leading to serious political instability uh, that could perhaps even challenge the CCP's ability to remain in power, or at least uh, how the CCP perceives that threat, uh, which could then compel it to adopt what is seen as more irrational behavior uh, i.e. externalizing uh, a conflict and directing public anger and discontent, and not so much at the CCP, but an external element like Taiwan, uh, which could then very quickly lead to escalation in, in the Taiwan Strait. I would maintain, though, that the likelier scenario is the one surrounding uh, Ukraine at the moment. Thank you. And I'm sorry that you know, asking asking for this, I kind of pushed us all in, into a little bit of, 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 of a depressing mood, but I really hope that Mr. Eric Huang, the head of the Taipei mission in Latvia, for his final remarks will put us back on track for a more optimistic outlook. Uh, Mr. Huang, the floor is yours. 
thank you very much, Uno. Um, I I think I have uh, we have really truly a, a great discussion here today, and I learned a lot. Um, I would like uh, first to uh, thank Director Sprouts and uh, colleagues of uh, LIA in organizing this meaningful conference to present the book that contains insightful observations and solutions provided for the hybrid threats of different dimensions that we are all facing today. I also would like to thank Uno for moderating the panel discussion and Michael, uh, Vida and Ivo and all the participants online for making uh, great contributions. I think you are absolutely right uh, to point out that Taiwan and the Baltic states share a lot of similarities in the forms of hybrid threats. I also would like to point out that we have such commonalities, not only because that geopolitically we are facing similar situations, but also that non-democratic countries that are straighteners also learn from each other. Uh, now, uh, we also should uh, be careful that if the authoritarian teacher and student would also collaborate with each other or even help each other in pursuing their aggressive agendas. Therefore, Taiwan and Baltics are not geographically separated as it seems to be, but we are strategically interconnected. And as, as we are closely linked, as the front lines in the global fight uh, between democracy and autocracy, we should also help each other. I think this is the main idea for having this meaningful event and the project to complete, uh, to compile the book that share experiences between Taiwan and Baltics and among our small democracies. I'm also pleased to learn that we touched several dimensions of hybrid threat during the course of our discussion and study. Uh, for example, there are dimensions in political legitimacy, societal resilience, critical infrastructure, energy security and cybersecurity. Those are the main aspects of hybrid threats, but it is a non-exhaustive list. We know it very well. Uh, there is at least a very critical issue that we may not have enough opportunity to talk about today or in this project. It's, it is the issue of supply chain resilience. I will share it uh, with you uh, briefly later. But before that, I also would like to point out that as the threats are hybrid, new kind of threat can always be invented or synthesized by our enemies. It may also be very difficult to identify and tackle threats once, uh, one at a time. Our enemies will not kindly allow us to do that. It will be too easy for us. Those threats may come all at once. Therefore, we must constantly prepare ourselves and upgrade our capacity and capabilities. We should not be overwhelmed by, uh, by our enemies. Now back to the supply chain issue. In my job, I cover three Baltic states, including Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. In the last year, I worked on a project for Taiwan to establish a new office in Lithuania called the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania in November. And I believe that all of you are aware of what, what's happening after the opening of Taiwan's new office in Vilnius. Of course, it is not only the opening of my office, 
but there are also other issues pertaining to Lithuania's insistence on the value of human rights and the rejection of the format of 17 plus 1. But China's economic aggression begins right after the opening of my new office. China deletes, uh, deletes uh, Lithuania from China's customs clearance system, preventing all Lithuanian goods from exporting to China. China calls it a technical issue, but that technical issue is still not fixed today. China is proud of, of is very proud of its 5G equipment and asks countries to use it. I'm wondering why China cannot have the technical capability to simply aid Lithuania back to its database after more than a month. China also imposes imposes so-called secondary section, forbidding companies of other countries from using Lithuania-made components if companies want to export those products to China, and China denied such action. This is unprecedented, unlawful, and undeclared economic sanction. If we allow this to happen, soon every small democracy will become China's next target because China can. The international rules of trade will also be undermined. Everyone will be affected. And please do not forget that Lithuania is a member of the European Union. An attack on, on an EU member is an attack on the whole European Union. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Taiwan will do whatever we could to help our friends. We think that every country should also lend their support for Lithuania. I'm glad to witness that many European countries and the United States have expressed their strong support for Lithuania. In the face of the hybrid threats launched by authoritarian countries, we could never forget the lessons we learned from history. It is probably best expressed uh, on the war of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum that reads, first, they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one there to speak for me. I think it is a similar situation in the international community. Each member of the international community should look after one another. Ladies and gentlemen, the techniques of hybrid threats that, that non-democratic countries use and the solutions we know are very well documented in the book we presented to you. But there are many other kinds of hybrid threats that we can always be invented. Not we, that people, uh, other countries, can always invent it and synthesized. We should pay attention to what we already know and stay alert of the emerging ones. We should work together. Together we are stronger. And it is especially true for small democracies of Taiwan and the Baltic states. Thank you very much for all your contributions today. Thank you. Uh, and uh, in the name and representing the editors, uh, Professor Andres Sprutz, Cynthia Brock, and myself, we thank you for being with us today for this event. Have a thank good day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.